morning, everybody. Okay, so if you don't know me, my name's Alan, and uh, we started last week with a brand new lesson series on the book of Ephesians, which is actually a letter that Paul wrote to a group of Christians. And he intended for a lot of Christians to read this. They passed that letter around all throughout the Asia Minor, what we would call Turkey today in that area. And he intended for us to learn some really important things, some things that are deeply spiritual, heavy on the doctrine side, heavy on the theology side, but he wanted to make it super duper practical. Because what it comes down to is he wants to tell us about our role in the family of God. And what we're talking about is how do we take hold of this, this position that we have in God's family. And Paul talks about in this letter three different positions that we're supposed to learn and to take hold of. The first one we talked about last week, it's sitting. What it means to be seated with Christ. If you weren't here last week, let me encourage you to go online and to listen to that lesson, download the notes, because there's a, a diagram there that I think will really help you understand what Paul's trying to get at and how we apply it. Plus, this lesson today and the one coming next week are going to build off of some of the things we covered last week. See, it all starts with learning how to sit down. It learns how it starts with learning how to rest in what Jesus has already done. And what we learned is sitting down and resting in Christ is not the same as being inactive. We learned that whatever is true of Jesus is true of us. He's seated at the right hand of God, and we're seated in Him. That puts us at the right hand of God. Anyhow, I'd end up preaching that lesson again this morning if I'm not careful. And this morning I need to move on and start looking at what he says about walking. Next week we'll talk about what he says about standing. These are three positions that I think that if we think about, if we learn about, and we actually get the practical edge of it, we're going to take hold of our position in the family of God in a way that maybe we haven't before. And we'll see him more powerful in our lives and through our lives. So this week we're going to talk about walking. And now when I talk about walking, you know what I mean, right? How you live. I mean, what is a walk? A walk, I'll, I'll demonstrate. Not that I'm the best at it, but this is my idea of a walk. One, that was on purpose. Two, equally on purpose. Three, and you get the idea. And with each intentional step, it takes me in a direction. Hopefully, it's taking me in the direction that God set for me and not in some other direction. So let's look at our first piece of Scripture here this morning. It's in the second chapter of Ephesians. We're going to start in verse 1. Paul says there, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Man, isn't that true? You remember what it was like before you became a Christian? Busy just doing what everybody else kind of did, right? Trying to figure out how to be... This is the definition of being worldly. Have you thought about this? Whenever you hear someone saying, oh, that guy's worldly or that girl's worldly, what are they saying? Sometimes that's a compliment depending on the, on the, the company that you're in. But whenever Paul talks about us being worldly, it's never a compliment. Worldly is about being caught up in this world. And see, whenever we were, before we were Christians, that was just normal. That's the way that everybody was. It was also the reality that we were dead, separated from God, not a part of His family, no promise, no hope, 
no inheritance and quite often just not even realizing how dark things were. But he says that's what you used to be. That's how you used to walk. And he calls us to stop being worldly and to be spiritual. There's a big contrast between that. That's one of the things I find when I look at this letter. Paul keeps offering contrasts. This versus that. Worldliness versus spirituality. Light versus darkness. Rest versus burden. So he goes on in verse 4. He says, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Verse 10, he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul kind of gives us a little bit of a summary in this passage, doesn't he? He starts off by saying, This is how you used to walk when you followed the course of this world. This is the way, that was what your steps were like. It was like everybody else. And it was all about job, money, house, kids, 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 sports for kids. Got to get this one here. Got to get that one there. You know what I'm talking about, right? That doesn't sound like real bad stuff, does it? Worldly. When you're wrapped up in this world, that's worldly. By the way, you realize that in Ephesians, Paul talks about some deeper truths that he couldn't say about. He couldn't talk this way to all the churches, to all the Christians. In Corinth, he actually complained. I couldn't give you this kind of meat. He says this in chapter 3. You know the reason why they couldn't understand the deeper topics? They were worldly. The good news on that is you can choose not to be worldly. You can choose to break this world's grip on you and learn how to walk differently. But here, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to warn you. You don't want to do that. You're almost wasting your time being here listening to this lesson. Because this is going to have some meat. This series is going to have some meat. Now, how old were your kids whenever you started giving them meat to eat? Little bitty. If you cut it up real small... A small child can handle some meat, right? And it's good for them. And we're going to do the best we can to cut this up into the smallest bites possible. But if you want to choose to stay worldly, none of this is going to make much sense to you. And you're going to struggle with your walk. You're going to look more like an American than a Christian. It's time to leave that behind. Paul calls that out in verse 2. Then he says... How God, in spite of the way we used to walk, being so worldly and not spiritual, so caught up in ourselves and in this world, in spite of all that, he raised us up and seated us with Christ. And that's what we talked about last week, right? And he says, now you're God's work of art. I don't know about you, but whenever I look in the mirror in the morning, I do not see a work of art. I see something that's getting worse by the day. How do we think about ourselves? God says that we've been created new in Christ. Christ is the new creation. And what we learned last week is 
If we're in Christ, whatever is true of him is true of you. So if he's a new creation and I'm in him, I'm a new creation. If he's seated at the right hand of God, where he's got nothing left to prove, where he's not being inactive, then I'm seated in a place where I've got nothing left to prove and I'm not supposed to be inactive either. We're created to walk in good works. That's what he says in verse 10, isn't it? Yes, you are God's art. You are God's masterpiece. But God didn't create you to hang you on a wall or sit you on a shelf and go, oh, look at that one, that one's mine. God created you to change the way that you walk, that you would walk in good works. And it's vitally important that you understand that first lesson about what it means to sit in Christ, to be seated and to rest in Him, because you will never learn how to really walk like God calls us to walk if you don't first learn how to sit down. Again, I'm tempted to go back over my lesson from last week, and we've got too much for this week to cover, so let me just encourage you. Go back. If you didn't catch that lesson, if you weren't here last week, or if you didn't completely understand it, give it a little bit of time to go back over that and look at those things again, particularly the diagram that I gave you last week to illustrate how this stuff works. Learning to walk in good works is what we were created for, and you will never learn how to do it until we first learn how to sit down. That's where the power to walk this way comes from. How did we get seated in Christ? Was it through our own power? Let's back it up a step. How did Jesus get seated at the right hand of God? Wasn't it the Holy Spirit? Wasn't he the power that raised Christ from the dead? Isn't that what Scripture says? What about us? How did we get seated in Christ? Through the power of the Holy Spirit. Right? And we just spent six weeks talking about the power of the Holy Spirit and how it changes us, how he changes us, how he empowers us to walk the way we're going to talk about today. Hopefully you'll see how all these connections work out together. So Paul wrote this about this. He talks about walking. In the, book of, in the letter to the Ephesians, he mentions walk about eight times. You can tell it's on his mind. It's not that big of a letter. He talks about walking about 24 more times in his other letters. Apparently, this consumed a lot of Paul's talk, a lot of his thought, and a lot of his concern for us Christians that we're coming after, that we should learn how to walk the right way. Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians while he was in prison. He was about my age at the time that he wrote these. He wrote about four letters. One of the other letters that he wrote while he was in prison was Colossians. And he talks about walking there too. Catch what he says. Starts in verse 9. He says, We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. See, he just said there in Ephesians 2 that we were created to walk in good works. He's talking about good works again. But he introduces another thought here, doesn't he? It's not just walking. It's walking in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. That's a qualifier, isn't it? What does a walk that's worthy of the Lord look like? See, we've got to get it down to this level 
or else we walk away unchanged. And we end up walking worldly. We end up walking like the world around us. And that's, that's a burden. That's a burden. It'll weigh you down. I'll, I'll try to make that point as I go on through this. We've been called to live a life that's free. And Jesus, like we talked about last week in Luke 11, he says, come to me if you're heavy burden. I'll give you rest. Come learn from me, he said. He says, take my burden because it's light. The burden that I give you because it's light. Jesus is appealing to us because we sit in him. We're seated at the right hand of God. He's wanting to take the burdens that we really can't even control. The things that weigh us down. And he wants to trade. He'll take care of those things if we will just focus our energy on the burden that he gives us. We talked about it last week. That blue dot. That's where we're supposed to focus our energy. On the burden that he gives us. It's that small blue dot from that lesson. And everything that fits in there is the stuff we're talking about today. It's about how we're supposed to walk. What he has in mind for us. And he wants us to walk in a way that's worthy of the Lord. What does that look like? Well, let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Verses 1 through 3, he says, Therefore I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So not only are we supposed to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord, a way that He deserves for us to walk, we're supposed to walk in a way that is worthy of the calling that we've been given. Okay, that sounds like religious language, right? Been called, called to do this, been called to do that. What does that mean? What is the calling that we've been given? Hard to walk in a way that's worthy of it if we don't even know what we're talking about. Right? We've been called to follow Jesus. Now there's a whole lot to that, but it's kind of simple to get our heads around that way, isn't it? To follow Jesus means to go where he goes. To do what he does. We talk about it this way. It's a, we've been called to become Christians. Sometimes we'll call it being a disciple. This is about your whole life. This isn't just about one activity here and there. It is certainly not relegated to an hour or two hours on a Sunday morning. This is your whole life. From the time you get up to the time you go to bed, everything in between. We're called to walk in a way that's worthy of our Lord, worthy of our calling. And wherever I look at these, he's got humility and gentleness. They seem to kind of go together. Patience and bearing with one another in love. They seem to kind of go together too. And unity of the Spirit. We would be eager for that. So what does a walk worthy of your calling actually look like? I think your walk is defined by how you treat others. I mean, is that what this is saying? Humility and gentleness, those are what other people are supposed to experience from you. Right? Patience and bearing with one another in love, that's what others are supposed to experience from you. And see, well, sometimes what I find is, whenever I think about my walk, I all too often think about my personal struggles. I think about my thought life. I think about me and how I'm not living up to a standard. 
And while there's a certain element to that that might be true, I have not always made the connection that really God is looking for how I'm going to treat other people. And what I've seen with my other brothers and sisters is, quite often, they don't focus their energy on trying to control how they treat their brothers and sisters. They treat their brothers and sisters about the same way they treated people when they were worldly before they were Christians. They ignored the ones they wanted to ignore. They complained about and were angry with the ones they wanted to complain about and be angry with. They put people down that they wanted to put down. They were more interested in friendship than fellowship. You with me? Your walk is going to be defined by how you treat others. So let's get real with it. I told you, Paul gives us some deep theology, but he always makes it super practical. So how are you doing with this list that he gave us? He gave us four things here, and this is just for you. If you're actually going to take a hold of this, I mean, I'm trying to cut this meat up into the smallest parts I can, but you're the one that's going to have to poke it in your mouth and get a hold of it and digest it to get any good out of it. So grade yourself, one to ten. Humility. How are you doing at treating others with humility? Again, do you even know what humility is? I got to tell you, I always thought for a long time I knew what humility was. And when I actually looked into it, I found out I didn't understand it very well at all. We could go deep into that subject, but here's just a couple of things. It incorporates the idea of seeing myself the way that God sees me. Agreeing with God about what he says about me. That includes seeing myself not as always bad. It's easy to see ourselves as too worthless. But is that how God sees you? It is equally a problem to overvalue ourselves and see ourselves as up here. The goal of humility is to see ourselves the way that God sees us. And one of the practical outflowings of achieving that view is losing this demanding nature of I'm going to have things my way. See, humility doesn't say, you've got to do this my way. I deserve. Humility knocks that stuff out. If you are constantly angry with people and focused on what you deserve and trying to demand that people give you what you think you deserve, you have a worldly walk. You have a walk that is not worthy of your Lord and it is not worthy of your calling. So how humble are you? One to ten. Nobody's going to grade this. I'm not asking you to pass it forward. I'm not going to come back and knock on you, depending on how you answer this. This is between you and God. How are you doing? Because you need to accurately assess how you're doing with your work, with your walk. Why? Do you need to be serious about this? Because the Lord is worthy of this kind of walk from you. Because bearing the name Christian matters. We do not want to walk in such a way as to cheapen that name. It is a family name. It is a name that we were given, not one we earned. How would you like it if someone took your name and did all kinds of heinous, stupid things and cheapened your name? That kind of disrespect could draw some anger, couldn't it? And in God's case, that would be righteous anger. I need to press on. 
The second thing he mentioned here was gentleness. One to ten, how are you at being gentle? Do you kind of like the idea that you're abrasive? Some people do. Some people actually take pride in the fact that they can push other people around or that they can be abrasive enough to make somebody back down. They kind of like it whenever people walk on eggshells around them. That's not gentle. How are you with that one? Patience, one to ten. Boy, I don't know of anybody that's really great with this one. Because there are people that will work your nerve. You, you, you get up, you got one nerve, and they're all over it. You know? Monday mornings, patience will be exposed if you do not have it. One to ten, how are you doing with that? Bearing with one another in love. How, how do you do with that bearing with one another in love? See, bearing with one another could be just putting up with an idiot. Right? Tolerating somebody is not what this is talking about. Because he says, in love. Love is a verb. It's a decision, much more so than it is a feeling. You look around you. This is the team. This is our local body of Christ. It is much larger than this one, but you guys are all we've got here in this congregation, at least today. Point out the perfect one. Point out, yeah, Chris is going to jump to his feet. You notice that's a self-designation and nobody else was actually pointing. Your, okay, yeah, you, you saw that, okay. The truth is, some of us are never going to get better in some areas. I hate to say it, but there are some things I'm probably going to struggle with all of my life. And I will hate it and I will try to do my best to get over it. I'm not making excuses. And bearing with me doesn't require you to make excuses for me. If it's in love, you need to call me on my junk whenever I'm not walking in a way that's worthy of the Lord. But you also need to realize I am His, not yours. And I need to have a commitment with you that you will stand with me and not reject me because I still have a limp. We need to have that kind. Of, that's what he's talking about. That's what a Christian walk is about. That's what he deserves. Okay, so we sort of set the bar kind of high already, right? And I haven't even got into the meat of this lesson. What makes it so hard to live this way? Seriously, who here has got a problem with what Paul's commanding? This just sounds like, oh, no, he's got to be crazy. That's just wrong. Who here wouldn't want to be in a church where people were defined by this kind of a walk? Well, we all agree and we can all say, yeah, this is wonderful. Why are we grading ourselves so lowly? What makes it so hard to pull this off? You tell me not to do that. What I mean by that is people don't deserve it. Look around you, left and right. This is your team. Which one of the people here deserves you to walk this way? Aren't we grateful that we're called to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord, not worthy of our brothers and sisters? The reality is, is your brothers and sisters, even the most mature of us, will never be good enough that they can deserve for you to treat them this way. Do you understand that? And when you were worldly, 
that's how you decided how you would treat people, was based on what they deserved. And immature worldly Christians still use that standard. I will treat them with kindness and respect when they prove it that they deserve it. I will show humility when they prove that they deserve it. That is not worthy of the Lord. And as long as you are looking at a brother and sister and waiting for them to deserve you to treat them this way, you will never walk that way because they will never be able to deserve it. But Jesus always has been and always will be worthy of it. And living this way where you're waiting for people to deserve the way you treat them is a burden. Isn't it? How many of you deal with that weight of somebody that you want to treat right, but you just can't bring yourself to it because they don't deserve it? It's just me, right? It's, I'm the only... Yeah. Okay. I think if you're breathing, then you qualify for that statement. Let's move on, because Paul's got some specifics. And you're going to see him do a lot of contrasting in this passage. I'll read it all at once, and we'll pull out what we can, and I'll try to move through it quick enough that we're not here all day. It's out of Ephesians 4. We're going to start off with verse 17, then we're going to jump down to 25 and finish up at 32. In verse 17, he says, Now I say this, and I testify in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. That's what we were doing when we were not in Christ, when we were not seated in Christ, before we were born again, before we were transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. We lived this way, and he's begging us not to do that anymore. Verse 25, he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths but only such as good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Okay, so let's just pull these apart one at a time. Verse 25, Paul says that we're supposed to put away all falsehood and speak the truth. Now here's the question. Why do we lie? Anybody in here ever lied? Yeah, I think, okay. How about just not speak the truth, which is falsehood? Why do we do that? I mean, you could tell an out-and-out whopper, Right? And you can also just not tell somebody the truth. That's a worldly walk. That's what we left behind when we came into Christ. We're supposed to tell the truth. Put away falsehood and speak the truth. So why don't we do it? Why do we lie? Isn't it because we want control? We want to control something or someone 
See, I don't want you to be mad at me, so I'm not going to tell you the whole truth. How often is that the case? I want you to like me, so I'm going to lie about something. I want you to respect me, so I'm going to lie about something. I want something that doesn't belong to me, so I'm going to lie about it. Isn't that about trying to control something or someone? It's kind of at the root of it, isn't it? So what does the Lord deserve? He deserves for us to trust Him and to control ourselves. How does this work? What are we talking about? See, if you're seated in Him, and you remember, I am seated in Christ. I am at the right hand of God. Not because I deserve it, but because of His unfathomable grace and mercy. He has brought me in and set me here. I can now rest. Rest in Him. What does rest in Him mean? It means I don't have to worry about controlling what somebody else does. I don't have to get caught up in controlling by trying to lie or hide the truth about something. Tell me, if you've lied and you said that you have, isn't that a burden? It's a terrible weight. Whenever you're trying to manipulate somebody to do something or think something that you want them to do, and so you're not telling them the whole truth, isn't that a weight? And last week we talked about laying down burdens. What Jesus said, come to me, those of you who are heavy burdened. I will give you rest. But you've got to learn from me. You've got to take the burden that I give you. The burden he gives us is this walk. This walk that will sit back and rest in him and allow him to control what happens when you tell the truth. Is it a burden to tell the truth? Yes. It's a light burden compared to the weight of lying. And see, if you don't believe that you are seated in Christ and that he will really take care of how these things turn out, you will never have the strength or the power to tell the truth. You'll carry that burden. How many of you guys are carrying lies in your marriage this morning? How many of you brothers and sisters are carrying lies between yourselves? You know the burden that it is. It's time to stop that. Because Jesus deserves more. What does he deserve? He deserves for us to trust him and to just spend our time trying to control ourselves instead of everybody and everything else. And we can do that when we remember that we're seated in him and he'll take care of the rest of things. Verse 26, he says, be angry and do not sin. I want to give this a little bit more time. Even if I don't get to cover everything that's in this passage, I want to give this one some time. Because anger, I think, is one of the things that besets most Christians. Oh, we can put on the, the mask and try to hide our anger. I've never been good at that. People seem to be able to read me like a billboard that's flashing. I can be upset and pretending I'm not, and I think I'm pulling it off. And everybody is watching me, and it's like curling off of me like steam off of something in the, in the winter. It's just curling off of me, and everybody knows I'm mad. I think that I've got them fooled. I don't know. It's probably a blessing that I can't hide it because it makes me have to deal with the anger. If you're good at hiding it, I'm really sorry for you. He says, be angry and do not sin. Why do we get angry? Think of it. Last time you got angry, what was it about? I've read up on this. 
The psychologists and the talking heads say that anger is a secondary emotion. It is not a primary emotion. It comes in response to a primary emotion. One of two, in fact. Fear or being hurt. Or both. We tend to get angry in response to either being hurt or being scared or both. Now, I personally would add frustration. If you've ever been frustrated by something, sometimes that can provoke anger too, right? But my next question is, is it always a sin to be angry? Is anger always a sin? No. How do we know that? Well, Paul says, be angry. He says, be angry. There's times when we should be angry, but don't sin. Does that sound like an oxymoron? Like, how in the world do you do that? Okay, well, we're going to talk about it a little bit more. One way that we can talk about how to be angry and not sin is to look at Jesus' example. Did Jesus ever get angry? Did he ever sin? No, if he had sinned, he wouldn't have been qualified to say, it's finished on the cross. He would not have been given the highest position known to be seated at the right hand of God, and we would not be seated inside of him. Jesus did not sin. Yet he was angry. At least one time, for sure it says it, in Mark ten fourteen. what did he get angry about? They were trying to bring kids to him. And the, yeah, this is where, we assume that he was angry at the temple. We assume that he was angry at the temple. I think you can make a good case, but it doesn't say specifically he was angry. But in Mark 10, it says specifically he was angry. They were trying to bring kids to him, and the, and the, the apostles, would-be apostles, the disciples were saying, get the kids away, this is for the grown-ups. And Jesus got hot about that. And he didn't sin. There is a time to be angry. So when does anger actually become a sin? Let me give you this. When it lacks humility. I think anger becomes a sin when it lacks humility. See, humility is about seeing myself not higher than God sees me or lower than God sees me. Humility doesn't demand that I get my way. Whenever my anger is focused on what I deserve instead of what God deserves, it'll be sinful. I hope you let this one sink in because this one has really helped me a lot. You will feel your anger sometimes before you know you're angry. Something will change in your body chemistry. And it's going that way because something has happened and it's caused you to think something. Your anger will reveal what you really believe. If you just kind of think it back where this fire started, you'll find out some things about yourself. And you'll feel it in your gut. And then when you start asking the questions, why am I angry? I bet you most times you're going to find out that your anger is burning because you feel like you're not getting something you deserve. I don't deserve to be treated this way, so I'm angry. I deserve to be treated that way, and I'm not, so I'm angry. That is not humility. Whenever your anger burns because God deserves something... Now you're getting closer to what it means to be angry and not sin. But most of us around here, it seems, don't get too bugged about what God deserves. 
And when we take issue with our brothers and sisters, it's not because they are ignoring God and trashing his name throughout everywhere they go. They get mad because you're on their toes. Because they think you're not doing what they deserve for you to be doing. That is called a worldly church. That's an immature church. That is not a walk that is worthy of the Lord. We are called to be angry, yes, but don't sin. Whenever you're angry and sinning, it's because you're angry without humility. Your anger lacks humility. In James 1, 19-21, James says, Everybody must be slow to anger. Now get this, not only are we to be angry and not sin, we're supposed to be slow about getting angry. I don't know about you, but sometimes between what happened to my anger is a nanosecond. Right? And yet I'm supposed to, a walk that's worthy of the Lord, I will slow it down and refuse to get angry. Why do I need to slow it down? Because if I don't slow it down, I will not ask the question, what am I angry about? What I deserve or what God deserves? You catch the difference? He says, be slow to be angry. And he says, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Human anger will never bring about the righteousness of God. Think about that. Because there have been times whenever I have been angry in the name of God. And what it came down to is I thought I wasn't being listened to the way I should be. Or things weren't going the way that I thought that they should. You ever been there? We can do things claiming that we're angry for God and that we're trying to do what's righteous. And in the name of doing something righteous, we can be sinful. Righteousness of God is never achieved through human anger. And if that's the case, and you're all bugged about something, I realize I'm preaching right where you live this morning and there's a good chance you're angry with me already. That's the job. That's what I'm supposed to do for you. I do it for Christ. I don't like anybody being angry with me. In fact, I hate it. But that's okay. I'd rather do what I'm supposed to do. I'm not trying to make you angry, but if I do, so be it. You're going to have to deal with some truth. You need to grow up. If, I'm not, if, if, if human anger does not achieve, if it never achieves the righteousness of God, and I am angry, what is it that I am trying to achieve? Because some of us really allow ourselves to be angry. We think we got a right to be angry. And if I'm never going to achieve the righteousness of God through getting ticked off and mad about something, then what is it that I'm trying to achieve whenever I'm ticked off and mad? Not His righteousness, your righteousness. That's called self-righteousness. Remember that the next time that you get angry. Slow down, James says. Don't be so quick to get hot-headed. Think through this. What are you focused on? What you deserve or what God deserves? In Romans 12, 17 through 19, Paul said this. He said, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what's honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 
Beloved, never avenge yourselves. That is an absolute statement. Never leaves no wiggle room. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Wrath is God's job, not yours. You get caught up because you're mad with somebody and you think they deserve punishment of some sort. Whether that's your anger or something that you're doing. And God says, you are out of line. That is not your job. By the way, when you're holding a grudge and you're angry with somebody, isn't it a weight? Isn't it a burden to carry anger around? You carry enough anger with enough people and you will be so overburdened, your walk will go down to a crawl. You may even quit walking altogether. And Jesus is saying, you're seated in me. You don't have to carry that burden. Do you not trust Jesus to take care of the people who are out of line? Do you think God is not interested in justice? Do you think that his arm's too short, that he can't reach this egghead that's giving you friction? Do you really think that's your burden to bear? Jesus says, no, it's not your burden to bear. Let me take care of it. I'm the only one qualified. Here's the burden I want to give you. Be slow to be angry. And when you are angry, make sure that you're angry about the right things and not the wrong things. Make sure that you're being humble in your heart because that's how I am. And guess what? Your load lightens. Living that way is much lighter. And if you've ever experienced... Some of you guys are smiling and nodding because you know exactly what I'm talking about because you have done it both ways. And you know that it's a much lighter burden to just trust God to deal with that person. And I will control me. Let God take care of that. And that's the walk that's worthy of the Lord. What does the Lord deserve for me? He deserves for me to focus on what He deserves instead of what I think I deserve. Boy, what would it be like to have a church where people only got mad for the Lord's sake? Because brothers and sisters in Christ were treating His name as though it was something common. Instead of being offended and angry because we didn't get what we thought we deserved. What would that be like? Verse 28, He says, Don't steal. Instead, work and share. Work and share. Stop stealing. Why do we steal? Why do we take things that don't belong to us? I don't know if we've got a lot of thieves in this room, although there are lots of ways to steal. It's not always about picking a pocket or robbing someone out in the parking lot or shoplifting or something like that. What about being a bad steward? Is that stealing? Stealing from God? Yeah. Whenever we are not generous, when we don't share, isn't that stealing from God? I mean, think about it. Why do we do that? Why? I've seen people say, well, look, you want me to support the ministry here at Greater Alton and to be financially generous with you, but who's going to pay my bills if I do that? A really good question to ask is, who created those bills, you or God? 
Did God really call you to buy an expensive brand new truck that you probably couldn't afford? And so now he's pleased with you not providing for ministry of his word so that you can drive what you want to drive. Is that what you're really saying? Do you really believe that or are you just hoping that I will? See, it comes down to this, why do we do that? We think providing for ourselves is up to us. Don't we? Isn't that why we steal? Isn't that why we refuse to be generous? Well, I've got to take care of me. Is that true? Do you really have to take care of you? If you're not seated with Christ, then the answer is yes. You're on your own. But if you pledged allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom, according to Matthew 6.33, and, and it's the Lord himself who said it, if you'll seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, then all this other stuff will be given to you as well. What that means is you don't have to take care of you. You belong to him. He will take care of you. You got a lot of money, you got a little money. Let me explain it to you. We're all the same. You get it from God. Some of you guys have better educations and have gotten higher paying jobs because of it. Who gave you the ability to get the education? Who is it that makes you employable? Where do these resources come from? Do they not all belong to God? So while you're making excuses for spending his resources on you instead of on his mission, you're stealing from him. And at the bottom line, what you're doing is you're saying, God, I think you're a liar. You say you'll take care of me, but I don't believe it. I'm going to have to take care of me. You see, it's hard to walk this way. But this is what it means to walk in a way that is worthy of the Lord. But if you're seated with Christ, you don't have to worry about taking care of you. His reputation is on the line. How he takes care of us says a lot about him. But if you won't trust him to take care of you, does he deserve to be doubted? Does he deserve for you to be stingy and greedy? And by the way, isn't stinginess and greedy and the worry about retirement and this kind of car and driving what we want and dressing like we want and going on the vacations we want, isn't that a burden? It is. I don't have that much money, so it's a lighter burden for me. I don't have that much money because I chose to work for him taking care of you guys. So I gave up my ability to go out and make money. Glad to do it. You're a wonderful bunch of people. I love you with all my heart. I'm not here for the money. And I don't feel like I work for you. I work for him. We are called to trust him and to walk that way. What does the Lord deserve for me? He deserves for me to trust Him, to take care of me, and for me to be a good steward. Man, how dare you make excuses for using His resources just for you? How dare you? There's nobody in this congregation that fits the real description of super poor. Everybody in here has been well taken care of by the Lord. And every week, every month, we wonder if we're going to get enough money from this congregation to pay the bills just to keep the lights on. As a group, I think we need to look at this don't steal and instead share. 
Verse 29, he says, don't say hurtful things. Instead, say things that build others up. Why do we put people down? Why do we try to put them in their place, take them down a notch? Why do we do that? We are expressly forbidden from it. That is not the kind of walk that the Lord is worthy of. And I know a whole bunch of sharp-tongued preacher boys that think that sarcasm and bitterness is a gift of the Holy Spirit. They think the ability to rip you a new one and to knock you down makes them somehow holy. And those same preacher boys will rail about you drinking or smoking or screwing around with somebody you're not married to and whenever it comes to controlling their tongues, they don't much think that really applies. Somehow, how we talk to each other and about each other isn't really something we have to take seriously. That's nonsense. That is absolutely nonsense. Why do we put people down or try to put them in their place? Two reasons I can think of. One is to elevate ourselves because there's no humility. I don't know of too many workplaces where it isn't true that there's always somebody, maybe several somebodies, that think that the best way for them to shine is to throw shade on everybody else. And it happens here. It happens amongst you guys. I see you do it all the time. You lift yourself up in your own eyes and presumably in everybody else's by throwing shade on everybody else. Shame on you. Shame on you. Stop it. And by the way, i got four fingers pointing back at me because I haven't completely gotten past this one myself. So I'm going to work on it, but I'm calling you out too. We need to walk better because the Lord is worthy of it. The second reason that I think that we put people in their place or put them down is because we think God needs our help to take someone down a notch. Think about that. God needs your help to take someone down a notch. Really? He needs you? You're the self-appointed hit man? The self-appointed pressure person to keep other people in line? Give me a break. What does the Lord deserve? He deserves for me to trust Him, to humble myself, and to consider others as more important than me. That's Philippians 2.3. That's what Jesus did. And man, I don't think it's true of us yet. I don't think it's true of us yet. I think from where I'm sitting, and I see a lot, most people in here are more concerned about themselves than anybody else. They get bent out of shape about how they're treated, about how their family's treated, about why they didn't get asked to do this and that person got asked to do that. And they reject, don't even consider that this passage applies to them, that we're supposed to consider others better than themselves. Because they're all worked up about what they think they deserve. That is worldly. I've got to wrap it up. I've gone too long. last one I'll show you is out of verse 32. And it's kind of a catch-all phrase here. Paul says, put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander. All that stuff, we're supposed to put it away. That is not worthy of the Lord. That's what it was like whenever you weren't even a Christian. He says, put all that away and replace them with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. 
Folks, I'm telling you, there is nobody in this building, in this congregation, never has been, never will be. There is nobody here that will deserve for you to make that swap, for you to act that way. But Jesus does deserve it. He is worthy of it. The family name that you've been given by being adopted into his family and seated with Christ at the right hand of God deserves, it's worthy of you walking this way and replacing that set of behaviors, those steps, with these new ones that come in Christ. How can you do it? I mean, anybody can point out what's wrong. Anybody can point out how we're blowing it. But how do we fix it? You start with remembering where you sit. You sit in what Jesus has already achieved. This is not a lesson about try harder. This is not a lesson about work harder. This is a lesson about learning how to rest. To rest in what Jesus already did. He is Lord of heaven and earth. Lord means owner, master. He owns all of it. He has won the battle. He said it was finished, and it was finished. It is finished. It didn't come unfinished. He's still in charge of all of it. And if you're sitting in Him, then you don't have to carry all these burdens we've just been talking about with that old way of living. You now have the power through the Holy Spirit to let go of that burden and to embrace the burden He gives you, which is to walk in a newness of life. To walk in a way that the Lord is worthy of. That's worthy of the name Christian. You will never, ever learn how to walk this way until you learn how to sit down. We've got to take this seriously. And then we need to focus on what God deserves. When we rest in Him, we don't have to worry about what we think we deserve. We can let that burden go. And embrace the burden that Jesus gives us, which is to focus on what God deserves. And He is worthy of walking the way we've been talking about. This was Paul's instruction to the Christians back then and ever since. And it fits with us today. The question is, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to get serious about it? Are you going to quit trying to work hard to be good? Or are you going to learn to sit down and rest in what he's already accomplished? Are you going to give up this nasty human nature trying to control everything and everybody? Or are you going to trust God to control all that stuff and you just worry about controlling you? Well, that's not where the lesson ends. Because this isn't just a battle of you against you. There's a team that's been assembled against us. And Paul said that there are three different positions we need to learn to take hold of our position in the family of God. The first one is sit. second one is walk. third one is stand. Next week what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what it means to stand. What Paul had in mind. I've got to tell you though, if you're not too worried about walking, don't worry about standing. It'll never be an issue. Why would help come after you if you're not willing to walk for him? A lot of us think we know about spiritual warfare. And some of those people really don't. Because you're no threat to the enemy. But if you will repent, if you will focus on what Jesus deserves, and why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you lay down this burden 
Why wouldn't you take the lighter load? Why wouldn't you honor your Lord? Look what He's done for you. It is a better way to live. And you can do that. And when you do, you will become dangerous. You'll become dangerous and you will attract some opposition. And you're going to need to know how to stand. How to stand up. We sit in the heavenlies with Jesus. We walk on this earth for Him and with Him. And now we need to talk about what it means to stand. So that's what we're going to look at next week. I hope that you'll come back with it. If you would, bow with me and pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come to you this morning realizing that we, we don't walk as we ought to. And we need help. We need your grace. That divine influence on our heart that changes us. We need your spirit. We need to listen to your spirit. You've given it. Father, help us to be led by your spirit and to walk with him. Father, uh, we want you to get all the glory. Father, help us to stop making excuses for honoring ourselves over you. Help us to stop making excuses for being worldly, as if it doesn't matter, as if you're not really in charge, as if you're not really there. Father, help us to live this every day. It is so doable. It is so doable. We can trust you with all of this. Help us to live the way that Jesus calls us to, that you'll be honored and glorified. Father, we pray that you'll use us powerfully and effectively to call attention to what Jesus has already done, to the battle that's already won, the victory that's already been given, and call attention that there's an entirely different way to be human. Father, we love you and we commit all of our ways to you. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask for you to keep mending up the brokenhearted teaching us. Help us to learn how to let go of the burdens that weigh us down and to take hold of the burden that will lift us up. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.